Hey, we're continuing our series on uh, called Hurt, uh, Avoiding or Escaping a Victim Mentality. And just uh, a fair warning, if you didn't get the email this week, we are talking about uh, sexual issues, sexual identity today. It's not going to be anything graphic, but we do have children's ministry upstairs if you want to take advantage of that. Um, but uh, what, what I'm doing, the goal in this series is not to give us answers to all the hurts that we encounter and experience, but it is to drive us to find an answer, to get healing, and help identify some of those things that might be inside of us that we might not recognize. And so um, I know for me, as I've gone through my life, uh, boy, I'm bebopping along, I think everything's great, and all of a sudden, something hits me a little bit, I feel a little pain inside, and it's like, man, there's an issue there I need to deal with. And that's what I'm hopeful uh, God will use this series for, and I see that happening already. And again, the goal here isn't to find all the answers, but I want to encourage you that if you do get, uh, feel something, a soft spot, get pushed on through these uh, sermons that you would consider Celebrate Recovery, which is a ministry that we've started here at the church, meets on Wednesday nights, and it really is designed to disciple us, you through um, finding healing for some of those things. So this week, uh, uh, the topic I wanted to hit on again was hurts related to uh, sexual issues and um Brady Cohn has uh, been a part of our network and has, uh, has been able to share in a lot of Brian churches, and he's known well. Pastor Ben knew of him, and so I was excited and thankful he's able to be here. Uh, your te- his testimony's powerful, and you're going to be encouraged um, through hearing what God's brought him through. But I want to say a prayer for him, and then he's going to um, bring the message today. God, thanks for Brady, and uh, Father, for all that you've done in his life. Thank you for his... Um, Uh, faithfulness to follow you and his response to you and to your spirit. And I just pray again for he and Mary and their family. You protect them as they serve and as they encourage people and help people um, through some difficult struggles in life. Just thank you for using them and uh, just pray over them and their ministry in the days ahead that you would just continue to go before them and fill them with uh, your power and your strength and uh, just watch over him as he preaches to us today. Um, Help him to deliver your words for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, John. Good morning, everyone. It's, it's not very often that I get to speak at three different services in one weekend. So as they say, the third time's a charm. So maybe I'll get it right this time. So maybe you're the lucky ones. Uh, I do think I'm starting to lose my voice a little bit. Uh, um, and so I, I think that that's God's way of telling me it's time to stop talking. So I've gotten a little over time the last couple of services. So maybe God will take care of that. My wife always says it's because I talk too loud. And so last weekend, and I have no volume control. And last weekend, I, after church, uh, a kid, I love the honesty of kids. A kid came up to me and was like, why were you talking so loud? And why are you so sweaty? And it's like, I don't know, kid. I guess I'm passionate. Back off. Uh, and so uh, that's what happens when I'm passionate. I get loud and I get sweaty, I guess. So uh, that will be, be me today. Um, so today we are talking about this hard, difficult issue of sexuality. Um, my, my ministry, Calibrate Ministries, um, I, I, I speak about this a lot of places. And uh, this summer, the message I've been giving a lot of places is eight lies, I believe, that led me to homosexuality. But today I'm going to do something a little bit different uh, that I don't always do. I'm going to share more of my story uh, because this isn't just about LGBT issues or, or, or sexuality. I really want there to be something here for all of us. And I think in my story, uh, you guys will see that and hopefully walk away um, experiencing God's grace uh, in some some whole new ways. There's, there's a passage that comes to mind when uh, I 
I think of sexuality in our culture right now. First Timothy chapter one, starting in verse five. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving away from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Well, I can't think of any passage that so much sums up where our culture is at right now with sexuality issues. It says that uh, they're, they're so confident about what they say, but they've wandered, they've swayed, they don't understand what they're talking about. And that's so much our culture right now. And uh, it says that, th- that our charge is to love and they love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And we live in a culture that says we're all about love. Love is love. Therefore, any two people can love one another. Uh, and we're all about love, but our culture has no idea what it looks like to love that in a way that comes from a pure heart that's been purified by Christ and a good conscience that's been reshaped by God's word and a sincere faith that's in Christ alone. So I pray today that uh, we, we can have a better glimpse of what it looks like to love in this way, love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And my, my heart is when I go to churches like this and speak, um, many times when I go to churches, uh, there's still this attitude within um, uh, a lot of small town conservative churches and Christianity everywhere that many times I hear that, look at the LGBT community, they're ruining the sanctity of marriage. And my response is, you know what? I'm pretty sure that heterosexuals have done a pretty good job of that over the last hundred years with no-fault divorce, cohabitation, pornography, all kinds of sex outside of marriage. We've, we've so much uh, uh, just ruined the sanctity of marriage. And if you're in one of those spots, God's grace is absolutely sufficient. But my, my hope and my prayer is that we can reframe the conversation a little bit uh, so that it's not just about how do we respond to the culture out there, but how do we respond in here? How do we respond in our church? How do we respond in our own life? Because we've all twisted sexuality in some way. So that said, I'd love to open us in a word of prayer, and then I will get started with my story and what God has taught me about sexuality. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for this time. I thank you for this church. I, I thank you for the just grace-filled place that this is that's so, been so evident from my time here. I, I thank you that uh, they are a church that wants to um, dig into deep, difficult issues and apply, apply the gospel to them. I pray that uh, people this morning would have an open mind and open heart and uh, they would experience conviction where they need conviction and that they'd experience grace in areas where they need to experience grace. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So my story began a few decades ago. I grew up on a small farm here in Nebraska, originally from Taylor, Nebraska. And growing up on the, the farm, I always felt like I was different than the rest of the boys. I always felt like there's something about me that's not like them. I, I'd look at my dad, my older brother, and other boys around me and just feel like I didn't quite fit in. There's something different. And it wouldn't be until years later when I'd kind of figure out what that difference was. Well, in the meantime, uh, my church, my family was a church-going family. We went to church on Sundays. We did the whole kind of Christian thing that small town, you know, uh, church-going families are supposed to do. We prayed before meals. We went to church. Uh, we had, you know, a really good Christian image going on, which is really easy for small town people to get caught up in. Well, life got pretty messy when I was 11 and my parents got a divorce. I mean, you guys come from those situations and you've dealt with that in your own life. You know how difficult that can be. 
So my parents went to the divorce and you know, the whole legal fight of uh, fighting over each other's stuff. And finally, it was, they went to court and it was finalized. And we thought we can move, finally move on with our lives. Well, instead, my parents actually got back together 17 times. And so 17 times, my dad moved back in with us. And every time it didn't work out. And so that was from the age of 11 to 14, which was just mass instability in my family's life. From month to month, didn't know if my parents were going to be together, which parent I'd be living with, where we'd be living. And that's a very formative time in a young person's life. And for me, that time was just filled with chaos and confusion. Well, it was also during the beginning of that time uh, that I started to discover maybe what was a little bit different about me. You know, uh, age 11, you're going to like junior high. That's a pretty horrible time for all of us. Like, am I right? Uh, it's pretty awkward, confusing, all these changes happening. Uh, there's like all of a sudden bullies at school and just, uh, uh, it's a hard time. And during that time, all the boys my age were starting to notice girls in ways that they'd never noticed girls before. All of a sudden, girls went from having cooties to being kind of cute. Like there's that type of transformation happening. But I wasn't noticing uh, though girls in that way, but I was starting to notice other boys in that same way. And I was really confused by that. I had kind of this fascination about them. There was like kind of this unknown. I didn't really feel like one of them. And they were kind of mysterious. And I was very fascinated by this world of boys. And uh, I was very confused by these feelings. I didn't know why I was having these feelings. It started with this emotional draw towards them. And then puberty hits. And it turns into sexual feelings towards them. And uh, I was confused by that. I had grown up in church. And I, I knew that homosexuality was a sin. But I'd always grown up in some very rural kind of legalistic churches where it always been preached on as the one unforgivable sin, whether it was said out loud or uh, you know, um, the undertones of, of the preaching, that was always the thought that that's the one unforgivable sin. So j- just the fact that I had uh, these feelings and desires filled me with shame and guilt. And I just did not know what to do with that. So I, I kept it a secret for a couple of years. And as any sin issues do and any thought life does, when we keep something a secret, it just builds and festers and kind of grows inside of our heart. And so over a couple of years, it started, started to really consume more and more of my mind. So this attraction towards other guys was growing. And uh, I, I had kept going to youth group on Wednesday nights after my family had walked away from Christianity and the church because I really wanted to know who God was. So I thought maybe I can tell a youth pastor or youth leader about this struggle and these feelings and uh, maybe they'll have some answers. But one night at youth group, before I got the courage to do that, was a moment that forever changed my life. Uh, I'll never forget sitting there with about 30 other kids when the pastor made a comment from the pulpit. He, he made the comment, I wish all homosexuals would die. And that comment was just like a knife to my chest. I'll never forget sitting there frozen. And what I was thinking was, he's talking about me. That's me who he's talking about. And so I actually went home that night and I loaded a gun. I was going to end my life because I thought uh, if it's God's will for all homosexuals to die, then I guess I will. And that's, that's how I interpreted what he had said was, I guess God wants me to die. Thankfully, by God's grace, before I pushed the trigger on the gun, I heard my mom walk in the front door. So I kind of came to my senses and hurried and put the gun underneath my bed before she found anything. 
So obviously I didn't end my life at night, but it was just the start of a downward spiral in my life. That was the moment I put up a wall and I said, I guess I can't let anyone in. I guess I can't let anyone see what's going on inside of me. I guess I have to put on an image for people and no one can find out about this. That's also the moment that I started to develop a very deep distrust towards Christians. Deep down, I wanted to know God, but I didn't trust the other people who serve him. So it would be years until I would step inside the doors of a church again. I didn't go back to church. I didn't go back to youth group. I wanted to know God, but I wanted to distance myself from his people. So as time went on through junior high, high school, um, shortly after that youth group incident, uh, that's when I discovered online pornography for the first time, which uh, it was, some younger people have a hard time believing that was really new, a new thing when uh, I was a kid 20 years ago. And now obviously we see that it's rampant everywhere around us. But when I discovered this online pornography, I was instantly hooked. And for me, I think that part of it was more than just a sexual addiction. Part of it was I was so desperate for a place to belong, a place where I felt understood. And here I had a place where uh, people had the same feelings as me, the same desires as me. Uh, There's a, a mutual understanding. And the only place where it felt like I could belong was in this online world of darkness. And as any uh, addiction does, it, it starts to grow, it, still, it festers inside, it, uh, uh, and what you see on the screen in, in those addictions is no longer good enough, and you want to experience that, you want to feel that for yourself. And so I started experimenting with same-sex relationships and sexual encounters with other men and other boys my age. And part of that felt great. I remember sometimes uh, waking up in the morning thinking, I can't go through the rest of my day without fulfilling these desires. So even 20 years ago in small town Nebraska, I could get online and find encounters with other men. And part of it felt like, finally, I can have this, this, this feel so good in the moment. And so as I went through high school, I got more and more involved in the LGBT community, which again, 20 years ago was so much more underground than it was today, but it was still there. And I found it and uh, people who were, you know, uh, loving and affirming. And I, I, always struggle saying this because I hate this reality, but my experience was that the LGBT community was much more loving than the Christian community. And so that's a place where I could find acceptance and find people who, uh, a community that I could belong in. But during this time, throughout the rest of high school, I was still wrestling with spiritual questions. I was wrestling with questions of identity, wrestling with questions of what does this mean for my life? What does this mean for my future? And our society was starting to talk about these issues a lot more. And what society was saying that was that if you have same-sex attraction, you're gay, and that's just who you are. That's who you have to be. You need to accept that as your identity and accept that as your life. That's how you can find fulfillment. And it seemed to make sense. It felt like I was just born this way, and no one else seemed to have any better answers. So by the time I graduated from high school, I'd really— uh, come to grips with the fact that I, I believe that I'm, I'm just gay and this is who I have to be. I was also really wrestling with God through that time because uh, I'd ask questions like, if God is a loving God, how could he create me in a way, because it felt like I was created this way, how could a loving God create me in a way that's going to condemn me to hell? And the only answers I could find to that were that either uh, there, uh, God is not a loving God or there is no God at all. 
So that's really where I was when I graduated high school and went on to college, just trying to live life the best I knew how, but anger and bitter towards God and anger and bitter towards God's people. Because I thought, how could the loving God make me in a way that's going to condemn me to hell? Well, I showed up to college freshman year, and I'll never forget pulling up to Shattern State College for the first time. I, I went to the dorms to, you know, move in the dorms, freshmen move in, and there's this group of guys standing there who offered to help me unload my stuff. And, you know, the typical freshman move in outreach, I thought they were just some nice guys, but uh, uh, they helped me unload my stuff. And uh, then they invited me to a ministry on campus that I met on Wednesday nights. And so I, I went that first Wednesday night to this ministry. And it was great. There was a speaker. There was a praise band. And I'm sure that the gospel was, sh- was shared. But uh, what I heard from the pulpit for those next two years of, of showing up every Wednesday night um, didn't really change my life because I was so hard-hearted and I was so bitter uh, that I thought that God's grace just doesn't apply to me. God can't love me the way that I am. I have to fix myself for God to love me. And for anyone who's ever struggled with sin issues and addiction, you know how that goes. I'm going to fix myself. I'm never going to do this again. And then 42 minutes later, you do it again. And then you're hopeless and you just give into it. It's like, I guess that this, this is just who I am and this is part of my life. But what kept, going me, kept me going back to that ministry week after week for those two years was not the preaching from the pulpit. It was the relationships I built there. There were upperclassmen men who were investing in my life. They were, they were uh, giving me a community where I could belong, where I could feel accepted, where I was loved, where I had value. And everything I was so deeply longed for, I found in this community. And I hadn't realized over those two years how God had used them to soften my heart. God was using them to show me a different picture of Christianity. These weren't guys who just showed up to church and put on a mask and pretended like their life was okay. They, they loved people. They loved Jesus. They were open and authentic and real about what was going on in their life. They weren't just authentic and real about their sin issues for the sake of authenticity. I think sometimes we can get caught up on that and we uh, dwell in the same place of being authentic uh, as, as the, the end of itself. But authenticity should be the means to an end, which is repentance. And these guys were not only honest about the sin issues they struggled with, but they repented of their sin. And they did that honestly and authentically and openly. And they included me in that community. Therefore, I could see Jesus working inside of them, changing them from the inside out. So after the end of my sophomore year, uh, I kind of really came to my breaking point. I, I dove in more and more into the LGBT community, and I'd been in same-sex relationships, uh, plenty of sexual encounters, just living it up like uh, this freedom that our culture says that we can have when we embrace it. But I remember walking away from every relationship, every encounter, and feeling like this isn't doing for my soul what it promised to do for my soul. It isn't making me feel loved the way that it's supposed to make me feel loved. It's not, it's not fulfilling the promises that it had for me. Every time I walked away from one of those uh, encounters or relationships, it felt like this hole in my heart was bigger and I was more and more broken, and I was more and more used, and uh, it wasn't leading to the life that it promised. And so that summer, I was filled with despair and hopelessness, because I'd really put all the chips on the table 
thinking that that life would fulfill me, that that life would make me happy. And here it was, it was failing me. It wasn't fulfilling me. It wasn't making me happy. As, as sin always does, eventually it fails us. It feels great at the time, but eventually it'll let us down. And so where was I to go from here? Because I put all the chips on that table. I, I put all my hope into that life. And so here I was hopeless. Well, I decided that uh, uh, even though I was suicidal again and because I was so depressed, I decided that I was going to tell a couple of my Christian friends, at least one of them, about this life I was living in the, the gay community. Because I'd done a really good job of living a double life. Uh, well, or so I thought. It turns out they knew a lot more than I thought that they did. But uh, it turns out I'm not that great at keeping secrets. But, uh, and so, so I, I, I wanted to tell one of my Christian friends about this whole double life I was living. And me telling him was really going to be uh, this, this affirmation that they don't actually love me. They don't actually love uh, uh, all of me. They just love the, the person they think I am. They love the image I've portrayed to them. But if they knew what was going on inside of me, uh, there's no way that they would, they would actually still love me. And it's going to be proof that this group of Christians doesn't love me, just like n none others do. And so I told my friend Lex, uh, I never, I'll never forget sitting in my stepdad's house when I told him. And I actually had a gun loaded in my room. And I said, when he rejects me, that's just going to be the end of it. I'm going to end my life. That's going to be the proof that I need that I'm not loved. Well, I'm still standing here today. So obviously Lex didn't reject me. Instead, he came across the room, gave me this big hug and said, hey, Brady, I love you. And it's going to be okay because your sin is no better or worse than my sin. And I don't know what this is going to look like, but God's grace is sufficient and we're going to get through this together. And I was just blown away that a Christian of all people uh, uh, could possibly love me so well. And for the next three days, I couldn't get that out of my mind. I couldn't get that. I, I kept thinking about Lux's response. And what kept going through my mind was, and I know this was the Holy Spirit working inside of me. I kept thinking, that can't be Lux who loves me. That has to be the Jesus I see in him who loves me. Because for two years, I could see Jesus working in his life. And he invited me to be a part of that journey. And so that has to be the Jesus I see in him who loves me. So for the first time, I became convinced that Jesus still loves me. That despite my sin and junk, and I don't know how this all works or it's going to fit together, but I believe that God's grace is sufficient for me too. So because of this, on June 21st, 2006, I fell to my knees in repentance towards Christ. I had one of these uh, tear-covered, snot-filled moments of repentance at the cross. And you know, I'd always called myself a Christian, uh, because back then in our culture, calling out ourselves Christian, having that label was advantageous for us, which uh, that's really changed a lot in the last 20 years. But uh, I'd always called myself a Christian. And I'd spent hours upon hours as a teenager praying that God would take these feelings away, that God would take this life away, that he'd take this struggle away. God had never done that. But what I realized in this moment of repentance towards Christ was that my faith had always just been my demands on God. It had been me telling God, all right, God, I will follow you, but here's my list of demands. Here's my terms and conditions. I want you to take these feelings away. I want to instantly be attracted to women. I want a wife. I want a house. I want the whole American dream. And so my faith was only my demands on God, my terms and conditions, which is really no faith at all. 
But now here I was at a moment of surrender where it felt like everything was falling apart in my life and I had nothing left except for this grace from Jesus. And so I was at this place of surrender where I said, all right, God, I don't care what it takes. I don't care what I have to do. I don't care who I have to tell. I don't care what it costs me. I trust that you love me and that's enough. So I surrender everything to you. And that is the gospel that God is calling us to. Complete surrender, no matter what it cost us. And so that was the moment that I truly gave my life to the Lord. And my life instantly started to change. I told the rest of my Christian community, uh, these guys at, at Shattern State about my, my life I was living and uh, what God was doing in my life. And they had no idea. They, they didn't know anything about homosexuality, same-sex attraction. But what they did know was that God's word has the answers for everything in life. And so they started to read scripture with me and, and pray with me and give me a community where I could be honest. And after 21 years of holding this all inside, I think there's a lot of emotional vomiting at them that summer. But they listened and they loved me. And they, they were reading God's word to me. And I was still struggling though. I was still struggling because I still had these feelings. I still had these attractions and desires. So what do I do with that? And part of me wondered, can I still just go on and be gay and live that life and maybe find a long-term relationship? And maybe now that I have Jesus in my life, if now if my ultimate fulfillment is from Jesus, then maybe that life will be okay with me now. Even though it caused me so much heartache and pain, uh, maybe, maybe it'll be okay now, now that I have Jesus in my ultimate fulfillment. But as I combed through scripture that summer, I couldn't find anything that justified uh, continuing to live that life. I kept coming across passages like in 1 Peter where it says, be holy as I am holy. And I had the conviction early on, uh, thankfully this was, this was from God, that this, this conviction that if my hope for eternity rests in God's word, if this is my hope for eternity and it's true and it's inerrant and it's the word of God and this is my hope for eternity, then I need to surrender to all of God's word. Uh, uh, I can't just pick and choose what I surrender to. And so I, I became convinced uh, that summer that I need to walk away from my LGBT life, walk away from these desires. And I had no idea what that was going to look like. It seems so impossible because it feels like this is just who I am. It feels so much at your core that everything ab about me is gay. That's just who I am. That's, that's how I was born. And so I didn't know what that was going to look like. But God showed me that I can be obedient to him today even if I don't know what it's going to look like tomorrow or next week or next month or next year, I want to be obedient today. And that day I, I knew that God was calling me to leave this life. And so by the end of the summer, my life looked completely different. I walked away from uh, the LGBTQ community. I walked away from sexual encounters. I walked away from same-sex relationships. I walked away from that community. Uh, so much in my life had changed that summer. But I want to be very clear about the transformation that happened in my life that summer. I feel like the goal that so many times the church has had for people like me was that to convince us to be straight, to go from gay to straight. That's, that's God's will, right? Like, how do I convince someone? How do I uh, talk them into this? How do I convince them that their lifestyle is wrong? Well, the transformation in my life that summer wasn't from gay to straight. It was from lost to saved. 
And that is so much more remarkable than any type of just outward behavior change. That's so much more remarkable than just changing the way I was living. God stepped into my soul and he rescued me for eternity. And it was out of that transformation that my life started to change. It was out of that transformation that, that I started to change the way that I was living. I want to share with you guys one verse that gave me so much hope that summer that I could live a different life. It comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We, we hear the, this passage all the time when talking about homosexuality. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 say, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor dolitators, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, will, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's a very serious passage of scripture. Uh, but I'd always heard it point out just towards the gay community as kind of this self-righteous uh, you know, indictment of them. See, hey, look, they're not inherited in the kingdom of God. But for some reason, I never heard the very next verse. Verse 11 says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And that just blew my mind that it says in past tense, such were some of you, they're no longer that. And I realized that these are not new issues like sometimes we think that they are. But 2,000 years ago, there were people who were homosexuals and now they're no longer that because they're washed by the blood of Christ. Clear back when Paul wrote this, uh, Jesus was in the business of restoring and redeeming and transforming his people. And he's still in the business of doing that today. So we started to do that in my own life. And that change started to happen when I had believers come along beside me. And, you know, the, the God's word is, says it's sharper than a double-edged sword. And it's true. It's, it's like a weapon. But instead of just using God's word as a weapon against me for people's own self-righteousness, people came along beside me and used God's word as a weapon to fight for me. They fought my sin with me. And that changed everything. So God didn't just flip a switch and take these struggles away, take these feelings away. But I want to share with you guys four things that God taught me that summer, four things, principles that God did in my life that summer that really helped me live a different life. The first was he gave me value. He showed me that my value doesn't come from relationships. My value doesn't come from this kind of emotional response we try to get from other people. My value doesn't come from other men, but I value just because I am his. I value because I am made in his image. That's where I get my value. Not from other people, not from labels, not from society, not from these relationships, but my value comes from him. Second, he gave me power. He showed me that now that I know him, now that the Holy Spirit is inside of me, I can wake up every day and live a life that's in accordance to God's word. And no, I'll never do that perfectly, but I now have the power of the Holy Spirit inside of me to live differently. And that's not a power I had as a non-believer. For some reason, I, I feel like this is an issue where uh, somehow we expect non-believers to be able to live a biblical life. And we expect to uh, be able to talk them into repenting of their sin, even though they don't know Christ. But they don't have the power of the Holy Spirit in them to do that. That their hearts are darkened. They're, they're dead in their transgressions. They're, they have dry bones. 
They need the power of the Holy Spirit in them to be able to illuminate their heart, to deny themselves of the things that feel like they come so natural to them. So now I had the power of the Holy Spirit, and that changed everything. That gave me the power to live a different life. Third, he gave me an eternal perspective. There's been times through this journey over the last 15 years where it's been difficult and painful and I've stumbled and fallen. I have doubts and I've had just this pain of, why me? This is so unfair. Why do I still struggle with this? And there's been moments where I wanted to believe what society says of just live it up, give into it. Uh, uh, my, my heart has wanted that at times. My heart has struggled with that. But God has always been faithful in giving me an eternal perspective to live for. Uh, he's over and over again in the moments when I've struggled, he's taken me to a picture of, of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is actually sweating drops of blood because he's so tormented knowing what he was going to be going through on the cross. But knowing what Jesus was going to go through, I read this, this passage and he still went there. And he did that. He went to the cross and he, he died for my sin, not just for the sins of the world, but he died for me. And one of my favorite verses is John 19.30, where Jesus speaks his last words on the cross. He speaks the three simple words, it is finished. And in doing so, I know that he has given me everything I need for eternity, which is himself and forgiveness of my sin. So in light of the fact that I have everything I need for eternity, it makes my desires and the things that this world says I'm entitled to seem so foolish when I have everything I need, which is Christ himself. Lastly was, he gave me a new identity. He showed me that I'm not defined by my feelings. I'm not defined by my attractions. I'm not defined by the labels that society gives me. I'm defined by the fact that I am his child made in his image. He is my creator, so he gives me my identity. And so uh, God started to change my identity, give me a different identity, give me a new identity that was based in him. Many times I have Christians ask, why is this sin in the you know, LGBT community, why is it treated so differently in our culture than other sins? Like we're being forced to celebrate it and accept it. We're not forced to celebrate other sins. And I, I, I give a little bit of pushback on that and say, you know what, I, I think that you're a little bit wrong. I think we do celebrate other sins. I mean, we celebrate gluttony at every church potluck. Like it's true. And sometimes we celebrate, uh, you know, materialism with the new truck we buy or the new house we build. Those are all great things, food and things that God provides us with. But, but we celebrate the idols that we make out of them. But I do feel like uh, um, this, this sin is being treated somewhat differently in our culture. And I think part of that is the identity aspect of it's not just something I'm doing. It feels like it's who I am. It feels like I was just born this way. But God started to chip away at the wall I'd built around myself. And he started to chip away at this identity that I'd accepted. And over time, my identity in Christ started to outweigh my identity in my sexuality. 
our world is adamant that people who are gay are born gay, and that's just the way they are. But for one thing, science does not show that. There's no scientific evidence of that. In every ounce of my being, I believe that we're not born that way because I see my heart change. I've seen the idolatry that was behind my same-sex tract, and I've seen that same pattern in man after man and woman after mo- woman who dealt with same-sex attraction. And don't get me wrong, sexuality is complicated, and it's nuanced, and there's lots of different factors that play into this. But I've seen uh, God illuminate areas of my heart and show me what my heart was twisting. I've seen God uh, show me this idolatry of looking to another person for my hope and my wholeness and for my value instead of looking towards Christ. And I see that same pattern of idolatry in so many men that I've walked alongside in this, of looking to another person for my wholeness instead of Jesus, looking to another person for what they can do for me, for how they make me feel. Romans 1 talks about uh, homosexuality. This, that's one of the go-to passages that we hear about a lot with sexuality. And it's this progression. It starts with, they traded God's truth for a lie. And they worshiped, because they traded God's truth for a lie, they worshiped, created, created things instead of the creator. They committed the sin of idolatry, worshiping creation. It says that they, they worshiped images of God instead of worshiping God himself. And we do that. When we idolize after people uh, in, in sexual sin, we're worshiping images of God because people are made in the image of God. So we're worshiping a person instead of worshiping God himself. And because they were worshiping each other, they, they developed sexual attraction towards people of the same gender. And God gave them over that lust, and they had sexual relations with one another. But God, through his grace, took me down a reverse course of that. Where through the power of the Holy Spirit, he helped me gain control over how I was living and live a different life. And then over the last 15 years, through this process of sanctification that is never completed on this side of the cross, uh, he's continually shown me lies that I believed that had led me through that life. Lies I believed about myself, about God, about the world. And in every moment he's done so, he's given me more and more freedom from the life that once enslaved me because he trades the lies I believed for his truth. And in doing so gives me freedom. And once again, I know that uh, I probably won't ever be completely healed on this side of the cross, but God has taken me down a journey of finding more and more freedom as I'm willing to allow him to expose lies that I had believed. So over the years, God has continuously shown me the idolatry behind my same-sex attraction. This, like I said, this idolatry of looking to another person to make me feel a certain way, to find my value from them, to find my hope from them. But also as I've, I've discipled men with same-sex attraction, I've seen that same pattern in their life. But I've also discipled many heterosexual men in my college ministry I used to be involved in and in my church and in our small groups. And one thing I've noticed is that very same idolatry behind my same-sex attraction and many other people's same-sex attraction is the same idolatry at the heart of so many other people's heterosexual attraction too. Because we live in an age where we idolize after people. We turn to a person for, to find our hope and our value and our wholeness. It's just for some of us, the object of our idolatry is different. We've been doing this since the beginning of time, ever since man fell into sin. We can go back to Genesis 29 and we see this, this story of Jacob and Rachel 
And if you know the story, Jacob's life is a mess. He's made some really bad, dumb decisions, as we all do sometimes. And his life is a mess. He has to flee his family. He has to flee his homeland. And so his life is a mess. And he, as he's uh, fleeing, he comes to this place where he sees this beautiful woman named Rachel. And he's so infatuated with this woman and that he's willing to give himself to slavery for 14 years to have Rachel as his wife. That's how desperate he is to be with her. So was Rachel's, excuse me, was Jacob's desire for Rachel, this gospel-centered, uh, kingdom-minded uh, vision of marriage, of think about all that we can do for God's kingdom together. No, it was his life as a mess and he saw this beautiful woman and he thought he could find redemption from her. But the lie, that, that's a lie because we can't find redemption from anyone other than Christ. But so many times we've built the foundation of marriage in our culture and uh, sometimes in the church based on finding redemption from another person. Whereas the truth is that we already have everything we need in Christ so we can be in relationships and have a sexuality that's about giving to others, about giving to our spouse because we have everything we need in Christ so we don't need to demand from them, but we can love them unconditionally regardless of how well they love us. But many times we've turned marriage into how big of a catch can I get? How does this person make me feel? How can I find value in this person? One, one time I was at my church in Laramie uh, while well, I was in seminary there. And I was kind of listening to this conversation that uh, this group of guys was having. And I think that eavesdropping is my spiritual gift. Like in the church lobby, I can, I can listen to three different conversations at once. So, so watch out. But uh, so I was kind of listening to this conversation and these guys were talking about uh, girls and who they could possibly date and kind of bringing up some names. And one of the guys said, hey, like, what, have you thought about dating this girl? And he goes, uh, I don't know. She's only a seven and I'm holding out for an eight. And I really wanted to step in and say, well, you're only a two. So like, how does this math add up for you? Uh, but thankfully, I was filled with the Spirit that day, and I held my tongue for a different day. But that just so much shows the idolatry of people, that we, we pursue marriage for two reasons in this country, and sometimes on the side of the church, we, we pursue who am I the most attracted to sexually, and who will make me happy. And that happiness is this temporary feeling. And so it's no wonder that the gay community wants to, they, they, they feel entitled to be married to whoever they're the most sexually attracted to and whoever will make them happy. Because that's the foundation we've built marriage on. But if we're going to make disciples in this culture, if we're going to uh, have a witness to the world, it starts in here because they need to see the same transformation in our lives that we're calling them to. They need us uh, to have a sexuality, whether it's in singleness or in marriage, that's about giving to others because we have everything we need in Christ already. I want to end with uh, my story with um, the story of me and my wife. And uh, it was a few years ago when we got set up on a blind date. And I'd really gone through a lot of my 20s, uh, really, yeah, all of my 20s being, you know, with the singleness and uh, feeling like I'll never be married. Because society tells us that someone like me should never get married because we'd be living in deception. We'd be deceiving um, our wife. That there, we can't possibly have that type of change in our life to be in a healthy marriage with the opposite sex. 
And so I come to a place where I was okay with that. I was content with my relationship with Christ. And I promise I'll wrap this up because I'm in the red number again. This timer back there is, is working against me. Uh, it's just like judging me, bearing down on me. So, uh, so here we go. Um, I can't escape it. Uh, it's God's grace that'll get me through. Um, and so, so I was determined that, uh, okay, I'll probably be single the rest of my life. And I'm okay with that because I don't want to idolize marriage like so many in our culture and our church have done. And my hope is in Christ. And we should all be at a place before we pursue marriage where we're content with Christ. And, but I was kind of had this martyr attitude of, I'm going to prove to the world how great singleness can be. And uh, I had a friend one time who always joked that, you don't know what a blessing marriage is until you've been married. And you don't know what a blessing singleness is until you've been married. And so I was determined to prove to the world how great singleness is. And I'm thankful for those formative years where God, Christ was sufficient and showed me that my hope is not in marriage or a person. My hope is in Christ. But when I was in seminary, I started to learn a lot more about biblical marriage and, and sexuality and biblical intimacy. And I learned that Biblical intimacy, healthy intimacy, it's not built on the feelings you give to me. It's built on a deep trust of one another and knowledge of each other and deep commitment to one another and reliance on each other. And so as I started to see that that's what leads to healthy desire for intimacy, I started to see, I think that that could be possible in my life. What society says is impossible for someone like me could be possible when it's built on the right things, when it's built on a godly path to intimacy. So it was during that time that one of my friends in seminary sent me a message and uh, said, hey, there's this really remarkable woman in my church in Cheyenne. Uh, would you be interested in going on a blind date with her? So I was like, oh, sure, uh, I'd do that. What will it hurt? I'd never been on a date with a woman before. And so he set up the blind date. And uh, um, I was, my house was in Nebraska. I was, I was still living uh, in Nebraska. And I was supposed to go to Cheyenne the next day for my date. And my house burned down. And so I had to call Mary and say, I'm sorry, I can't go on our blind date. Uh, my house burned down today. And uh, she's like, oh, sure. Like, you couldn't come up with anything better than that? Are you serious? And uh, so I text her some pictures of my house burning down and me covered in soot and ash. And this is the only shirt I have left. And uh, she's like, oh, wow, your house did burn down. I'm so sorry. And so it was about a month later we went on our first date. And uh, she's now my wife. And we have a seven-month-old little beautiful baby girl at home. And so things are getting pretty serious. Uh, but... <laughs> As, as I was, uh, where the baby is teething, so things are really serious right now. Uh, but as I was dating Mary, I kept getting such interesting questions from Christians. Christians make comments like, oh, you're dating a woman, so you're attracted to women now. And I just cringe at that comment because it's like, no, no, no. Because I don't want to trade lust for men for lust for women. That would give me nowhere in the kingdom of heaven. I want to be attracted to one woman, and that's my wife. And God has built that intimacy between us in ways that the world says is impossible because it's built on a gospel-centered relationship. And surely we have a lot to figure out uh, as a married couple. Just ask my wife. Uh, I, I fail every day in some aspects, but I'm thankful for this foundation of I have everything I need in Christ so God can build a healthy marriage between me and my wife because it's not based on just the feelings that she gives me or what she can do for me or me finding my value or my hope through her. I have all that I need in Christ. Therefore, I can love her unconditionally. 
And that's the type of, of, of sexuality that God is calling us to, to find hope in our hurts, habits, and hangups, to find healing so we can invest in other people. So it's not us using them, but it's us giving our lives to them because we need everything we need in Christ. So my prayer for you today is that no matter how you've been hurt by sexual sin in your life or by someone else's sexual sin, that you can take some steps forward, that you can experience transformation, that you can lean in, you can get involved in things like celebrate recovery and small groups and the core classes and lean into these issues because there is help and healing and hope available. And if that's not you today, uh, if that's not an issue that you've been uh, um, affected by, which I'd be surprised, but if it's not, you're not off the hook because your church family needs you. They need you to walk along beside them. If you don't struggle with, with sexual sin in your life or have been affected and hurt by it, probably look around and the person next to you does. And they need you to walk along beside them in grace and in truth with love and compassion. One time uh, I spoke at a church and this lady came up to me afterwards and said, I really should reach out to my lesbian neighbors, but that sin is just too yucky for me. And I had two responses for her. I said, one, go home and look at yourself in the mirror and understand that Jesus had hang on the cross just as long for your sin as he did for your lesbian neighbors. And secondly, go to Acts 17. And uh, you see that Paul goes to Athens and he sees a city that's so full of idolatry and sexual sin, including homosexuality and everything else. He's physically sickened by it. But did he say that that's too yucky for me? No, he went there and he lived with them. So he could get close enough to them. So he said, so he could understand the idols their hearts were serving. So he could apply the gospel to it. So that's our call as the church, to live in close enough community that we can embrace the mess because ministry is messy. Transformation is messy. Let's embrace the messiness in each other's lives so we can understand the idols that we're serving and apply the gospel to it. Let me close us in prayer. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for this time. I thank you for this church. I, I pray that they can be a church that enters the mess and uh, not only in their own life, but other people's lives so they can proclaim the gospel. I pray that whatever people are feeling this morning, they will lean into it. That if they, they are experiencing any conviction, that they will accept it and be obedient. If they're uh, experiencing any pain, that they will experience your grace because your grace is so much more than anything this world has to offer. I pray these things in your name, amen.